0: everybody and welcome to the next episode of the biodiversity podcast by teasels and today i'm joined by hannah needham from hill rewilding hello hannah uh how are you
1: i'm very good thank you daniel how are you
0: yeah not too bad not too bad just tripping over that intro before we got started <laughs> um hannah do you want to just give a bit of uh, an introduction to yourself before we uh yeah before we get started
1: Sure. So my name is Hannah Needham. I'm uh, based in the south of England, and I'm the junior director for a charity, new charity called Heal Rewilding. So we've been around for about a year, um, and we're on a mission to rewild land across England.
0: Fantastic. So before you, um, before you um, became the junior director of of Heal, uh, do you want to give a bit of background of how you your kind of uh, your journey from from where you are now and 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 how you arrived at heal
1: yeah sure so i was always really fascinated by science and biology but i didn't quite know exactly what i wanted to do i ended up following the academic route doing a phd realizing my career was going towards the pharmaceutical route and i panicked and i thought we need to do so much more about climate change and the biodiversity emergency. So I went off piste and started volunteering like crazy for all sorts of different wildlife charities. And um, yeah, so after doing some practical stuff with the Wildlife Trust, getting my chainsaw license, looking after livestock, all that kind of really hands-on land management stuff. I then also worked a bit for Natural England. And then I worked in river restoration before um, meeting the lovely people at Heal and ending up here.
0: Wow. So I'm go- I've got to take you back. And then that was quite that was quite a flip, really, because doing a PhD and kind of being no doubt super, super focused on that or you having to be super focused and then taking a sort of uh, an about turn. And so I've got I've got to ask, was it sort of what was the sort of the big thing for you? Did you just sort of the stuff around Extinction Rebellion and it coming to the fore and you know the, the climate emergency or were you tuned in sort of before that
1: that kind of it did creep up on me so when I got to uni you know left school left home started thinking a bit more for myself and started seeing what was going on in the news people talking about climate change and obviously studying it as well at uni I did biology so I studied it and I kind of got more and more alarmed about what I was seeing and reading and I felt like I was the only one in my peer group who was as concerned as I was. And when I speak to people about it, I get quite a lot, I'd get quite a lot of, Oh, well, nothing can be done. It's, you know, it's just a fault of humanity. Human, humans are the problem and it's never going to get resolved as long as humans are on this planet. And I was just thinking Mm. that is not the mindset. So, you know, that, that was growing and building inside me. Mm. And then when I got to PhD level, you know, you're supposed to be really committed and into your subject area at that point. And, Firstly, I um ended up doing something where it was involved what was involved was testing on animals, mm. and it was only you know only fish, but when I was seeing how many fish were being killed bred to be killed all the time, and it wasn't just fish, it was all sorts of animals yeah. um, that was really bugging me, but also the amount of plastic that was used and not recycled because you know it contains. DNA that might contaminate the environment and all these different things, so it has to be just incinerated. And I saw the carbon footprint of everything that was that we were doing, but yet I didn't have any idea how it was being, you know, it was being mitigated. And it seemed to really only bug me and nobody else. And that's when I realised that I was doing the wrong thing and I was in the wrong place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you found, uh, so you found the right place because I'm, you know, we were ch- we were been chatting previously about about heal. Um, do you want to give a bit of background on um, the people at Heal? Because I was blown away by, well, firstly yourself and what you've done, and the trustees as well. I'd love to, I love you to tell uh, the viewers more about, um, you know, the, 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 you know, Heal as, a, as an organisation.
1: Well, everyone at Heal has been on a similar journey to me, so has been working in business or working in a different sector, and has come to realise that we need to do a lot more about. Climate change and biodiversity than we are, um, so nobody has a long background in in you know nature conservation or anything similar. We've got people with business backgrounds, finance, PR, various different things. Um, and the way I got introduced to this group was that, as I say, when I left and decided I needed to devote my time to the environment, I was frustrated at how few opportunities there were to do anything. You know, you you could sign up to volunteer and do days here and there, but I felt like that impact wasn't big enough. So I set up a local volunteer group in my area who, and you know, went straight to the councils to talk about rewilding and to talk about climate change. And I, through doing that, met somebody else who was doing exactly the same thing, but at a different stage of life to me. Um, So um, the trustees are, older than I am and a different different stage of life. And they're thinking about how climate change is gonna impact their children and their grandchildren. And, you know, through that kind of mutual interest and the fact that we were taking action in the same way to contact councils and to speak to politicians kind of noticed each other. And um, yeah, I bumped into this uh, wonderful woman called Jan, who um, was kind of thinking about retirement and then decided actually no let's set up a national charity (laughs) to rewild across the UK because that would be more fun and more impactful um and she just the way she talked about it was she she can't sit back and not you know if you if you see something you love in trouble you can't sit back and, and watch that happen so yeah
0: so it's really interesting as you're as you're talking there I think that uh you know as your example there's a thousand there's a million examples out there of people you know wanting to pull in this same direction and it's trying to find the vehicles in which we can all you know move in the same direction because i really feel that there is uh, a growing meaningful uh, cultural shift towards us now i don't think it's i don't think it's on the i don't think i was gonna say it's on the verges on the uh, on the on the on the on the, uh, on the periphery I just, yeah. I sincerely feel that, you know, that w- there is a, you know, a movement that, of people. And I think, l- like Hill was doing, we just need to find a vehicle in which to put our energies, you know, into.
1: Mm. And that's what I see rewilding as. So when I got introduced to it in 2018, it was something that not many people knew about. It was a word that people hadn't heard very often and my kind of circle at that time was wildlife conservationists and they talked about rewilding and said some say oh it's just a romantic fantasy that will never happen some were really interested in okay well what makes rewilding and conservation different and wanted to get bogged down in definitions and so that's where I came at it from thinking Mm -hmm. okay so how is it different and if you're going to set up a a rewilding group why is that different from a conservation group and now I just don't even think about that sort of stuff anymore to me rewilding is the cultural shift it has so many things in common with wildlife conservation but it's just for some reason at the moment seeming to attract the attention of so many people that weren't particularly interested in the last 20-30 years in conservation for whatever reason
0: Hmm. because i i again it's quite interesting because i don't want you you're right you don't want to get bogged down in conservation rewilding but it's it's again it's that phrase that um that people just when i'm in conversations it's just synonymous with you know yeah oh rewilding you know regardless of whether it is you know it is um it is rewilding in 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 the in the sense of what's going on at nap what's going on in other in other um places in and around england but yeah it's um no, it's great. It's, it gives that it gives a handle for people to 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 really latch onto. So I think, sorry, really,
1: go on. I think people really like rewilding because it's sort of to me it's about reversing the damage. Yeah. And what we've talked a lot about over the last few decades is stopping the damage and protecting what we have left. But rewilding is all about make you know keeping protecting what we have left and then making more of it. Yeah. And finding a new future, not trying to kind of stop what's happening. It's more ambitious and it's important to note that we couldn't do, we couldn't save these species and make more of them if we hadn't worked so hard on wildlife conservation. Without wildlife conservation we wouldn't have any of these things left but it's not enough on its own and rewilding is you know synonymous with hope and optimism and it just really inspires people.
0: And it inspires, you know, you can, you can actually go to, as, a, as, a, as the sort of figurehead place. you can go to NEP, you can see what's actually happening. And you're right, it is hopeful because there's so much bad news out there that this is what happens, this is, this is what can happen if, you know, you allow nature to, if you give nature a chance, you know, and, you, and it's not fluffiness, it's, it's quantifiable. I mean, how many species do we see there? How many species that are on the red list? How many, you know, um, you know, the, as a figurehead, the, is it the Purple Emperor, you know, that's there, the White Stork, you know, it, it, it's hopeful, but it's quantifiable and we can see it in action.
1: It's like, it's a little bit like stepping back in time.
0: So we do love a bit of nostalgia. I guess that's part of it as well, yeah. isn't it?
1: <laughs> like my grandparents grew up and where they, you know, they lived in the countryside, they could hear turtle doves all the time. Every summer that was just standard. Whereas... When I read about that sort of thing, I have no idea what it means because mm. I've never experienced it. But if you go to NEP and you go, you see all of this abundance of insects. So, you know, you know, the whole thing where back in the day, when you drive your car, yes. you wipe the windscreen because it would be covered in insects. Well, you don't get that anywhere, but you would get that at NEP. So it is a little, like, it's a little pocket of kind of, yeah, of nostalgia. And it's really endearing and people love it.
0: Mm. So, so we've healed, um, so, for the viewers at home, what are what what are your what are your aims? You know, short, medium, and long term. What what do you actually want to achieve? Of, um, you know, at Heal.
1: Okay. So the short term aim. So our, our mission is is very simple. <laughs> I say this, I'm going to forget it. Our mission is very simple. It's raise money, buy land, rewild it. So pretty yeah. really straightforward. And it came from, you know. There's a major charity in the UK, well, the major charity for rewilding in the UK is Rewilding Britain. Yeah. They're a small organisation doing amazing work, lobbying MPs, working with landowners, you know, the people who are at the top with, in a position of power, trying to convince them how you know, the benefits of rewilding. But there isn't much scope in there for really keen individuals to help with that because it, it just doesn't, it needs, you know, a few subject matter experts it doesn't need hordes of volunteers so there's all this energy and enthusiasm bubbling up for rewilding particularly because of Isabella Tree's book but there's kind of not many channels for people to actually you know do anything about that enthusiasm put to put their energy into anything meaningful yeah. so you know I was one of those people for a long time you desperate for any kind of rewilding opportunity writing to people saying how can I help and then finding out well you can't really yet um, so this charity, Heal, was set up to empower everybody to get involved in rewilding. And so the idea is that we're going to have publicly open spaces that are going to be at the point of acquiring them. they will be degraded land. So, you know, land that has been in some kind of damaging land use for a while. Maybe, you know, the wetlands have been drained. Maybe it's been you know, basically abused by us as much of our countryside has. And you leave the land really to go fallow and you put back the elements of the ecosystem that we know are missing and allow the ecosystem to kind of heal itself. So it's a minimal intervention approach. You know, we're not gonna go power tools and engineer the landscape. We're gonna let animals do it themselves because they know how to do it best. Um, And one of the really exciting things about HEAL is our HEAL 3x3 sponsorship system. So all of the land at our sites will be divided up into three by three meter squares Mm -hmm. using what three words addressing system. So the kind of alternative to Google Maps, what three words is really cool. And anyone is able to sponsor a square of land on our site for a year, three years, you know, their whole life. And they'll be able to watch and they'll be able to come and visit that square and see how it changes from the point from the, the day that we acquire the land when it's got very little biodiversity value, they'll be able to watch that square change over time. Um, And you can give these squares as gifts or you can sponsor them for yourself, or you can do a big family patch or a big patch for your organization. So that is one tangible way that people can feel really connected to a rewilding project. And that's really important because so many of the rewilding projects at the moment are being done by private landowners. And that's amazing that they're doing that, but it restricts how you know, there aren't that many places that people can go and see. Yeah. So it's all about engaging with people, having safe expe- like, safe and accessible places where everyone can come.
0: Okay, so, no, um, yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, and then, then um, yeah.
1: So, well, the medium term, so we're starting with a site in the south, and then we will be going to the north, and then pretty much from there, it will be a hill site in every English county as and when they become available. And our goal is a site in every English county by 2050, which is at 500 acres a site, approximately um, oh, 10,000 hectares. Yeah. Is that correct? yeah, so 500 acres a site by 2050 is 10,000 hectares. You might want to check that maths but i'm
0: pretty sure that's correct <laughs> so maths maths aside though what i'm what i'm picking up from what you're saying is that it's the you know the connectivity as well so having you know hat so i guess part of part of the idea would be have that connectivity between those sites so at least you can you you can see that there is uh a link from the south to the north i mean broadly speaking a link from the south to the north and these don't just become islands, they are part of a, a, a more of a connective network.
1: Yeah, so I think, part, and you know, that's one of the reasons we've chosen the lowlands as well. So I didn't mention that earlier, we're a lowland specific charity. And that's because there, there is a school of thought that the highlands are inaccessible in terms of they can't really be used for towns and cities, so people can't relocate there. And they're more difficult to farm so maybe you know they should be our nature rich areas we should rewild the highlands and we should use the lowlands for us which is you know makes more sense i suppose in ways that in terms of transport mm. but actually then you risk having really really urbanized areas and really really nature rich areas that only like the privileged few can access and so you know it is important to rewild the highlands but it's also important to have rewilding areas in the lowlands because If people can't see nature, if they can't get to nature within, you know, a 10 to 30 minute drive, real wilderness, then how are they going to fight to protect it? How are they going to vote for green policies? How are they going to support charities? You know, why would they if they if it's something that isn't for them, then they won't support it. So if we really are going to do something about biodiversity and climate change, then we really need to make it for everybody and not the privileged few, as it has been for far too long.
0: Mm that's so powerful i mean i don't i don't think we need to go over it's been said a thousand times you know our connection to nature over the time of covid i mean that's been yeah. said a thousand times but you know you're 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 dead right you know you're you know if we if we don't know what we're saving we don't. we know we're not connecting to it you know how mm-hmm. can we how can we change you know how can we change our our views towards it you know um
1: powerful. and something interesting i had when i went to a it was a kind of day-long event run by London Wildlife Trust and they were talking about urban urban kind of wildlife volunteering yes they said that one of the things one of the ways that so many charities fall down is they kind of only ever focus on the really rare species so they'll only want to report a sighting of a really rare bird or they'll only want to protect really really rare species and it kind of it really alienates people because if you're somebody who lives in a town and you only really ever get to see ladybirds and robins and squirrels they are still important to you and they're your experience of nature and if you never see that represented in the in the wildlife charities like in their communications and anything then you just think well that's not for me
0: Hmm.
1: you know I, I was talking about turtle doves earlier and everyone raves about you know the turtle doves at net but it's you know I've never seen one I've never heard one no. so is this, does that appeal to me and my generation not particularly so you know you need to think about everybody
0: i love this so you, it's, it, it's, you've got it you've got it right from day one it's that inclusivity exactly um
1: exactly and that is in all aspects so you know is it affordable for people to come to your sites can they actually get there from a city if they don't have a car all of these things need to be thought about and if the answer to any of those is no then you need to figure out okay well, what do I have to do what do we have to do as an organization to make sure there is provision for those people and we you know we're starting to think about having you know women only tours um, just whatever we can to make sure that nobody's left out and even things you know having, having loads of sets of spare wellies on site so the people who are from towns and don't have that sort of thing and don't have the money to buy that sort of thing can still come and experience the site at its fullest and don't feel held back
0: <sighs> yeah sorry i'm i'm i feel that's just I feel that's, <laughs> but no it's so good you know it's so great to hear is and that uh, because you, you mentioned earlier about you know it's not for the privileged through few you know like don't get me wrong for one second Neps great but you know how many people can go camping there? How many people can. I know. You know um, how do people get there? Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, but
1: because there's such demand at NEP. So that's the main problem with it. Yes, it's expensive. And it's not a criticism of NEP. You know, they obviously need to make money to keep going and it's an expensive business. So, you know, it's expensive to go, but it sells out so quickly. You know, yeah. you have to put months and months and months in advance. So that just goes to show that there is so much demand people want places like that to go to so that's what makes our business case stronger because you say okay you know we can go to big funders and say well look NEP is the only thing like this really in the country and it sells out instantly we need more of them and we need more of them not just near London we need them everywhere we need them near Bristol we need them in the north mm. in the Midlands. so
0: so yeah. so in terms of the uh, in terms of the the funding mechanisms what um, so you mentioned earlier about people buying, uh, buying, uh, 3x3 three three squares, but can you go into a bit more detail about, you know, potential funding mechanisms, um, that, that, uh, you know, how people, how people, businesses, um, can get involved.
1: So we've got about 12 different income streams, which I won't list all of, <laughs> but so Heal 3x3 is our main way to get people involved. And for them to feel like they have a part of the site yeah. um, through their sponsorship we also have um a friends of Heal scheme so it's like membership so we get support through you know regular support through that and regular donations which is how we keep going on a day-to-day basis we also have some businesses who from you know very on very early on so when we were about three months old got in contact with us straight away and said you know how can we support you and we've had you know, money coming in from them steadily, which actually is going up and up all the time, which is really, really positive. So, you know, they were on board from very early on where we were more of a concept. And Mm. now we actually are more of an organization. We've got, you know, 220 odd volunteers now. Um, We get support is growing. So the regular support for businesses is, is really, really good. And then- I must
0: say what you've, looking from the outside in, what you've, you guys have achieved, it's pretty amazing, really, and I, and I, and I won't and I, I, I won't you know I won't ask you to name those businesses, but uh, um, good on them, <laughs> good on them, you know. See, and then putting money where their mouth is, which is basically what I'm getting at. You know, they they I like the idea, but they're supporting it. That's great.
1: What you'll find is that everyone sort of knows that businesses are going to have to start doing more for climate and biodiversity, and you know, if you start doing that now and get ahead of the curve. you'll be be best placed. And it's the kind of, if you just sit back and think, oh, well, you know, I'll deal with that later. And, you know, it's not gonna help the businesses themselves. So it's about, you know, I, it's not me who has these conversations every day, like every day with the businesses. It's Jan, so our chair of trustees. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have very different roles and we complement each other. She has most of those and she's on the phone pretty much all day, every day, just introducing HEAL to people explaining our aims Mm. talking through what we're going to do getting you know getting to know people and through those conversations that you just you meet people in businesses you know individuals who are really interested in climate change really interested in rewilding and they say i'll put you in touch with so and so and through those relationships we have just managed to make loads of really really good partnerships so we've got that regular support which is amazing and then The thing is, with our fundraising target, it's pretty big. So because we want to have a site of um, about 500 acres each time, Mm. and the reason for that is because we would like to have herds of free-roaming animals to manage the land so that we don't manage it. So 500 acres is is about big enough that we could have some cattle, some pigs, some ponies um, roaming freely. And so if you're looking in the south of England for a site that big, that also has buildings. So we would like to have buildings that we can convert rather than you know putting up new buildings, which would be bad for the environment, to convert existing buildings. You're looking at about five to ten million a site.
0: Yeah.
1: And there aren't that many as well, which we've learned. So we're getting about one a month in our inbox. So it's it's difficult, mm. but it's quite a big fundraising target. So All of the money that's coming in is amazing and it's keeping us ticking over, which is brilliant. You know, this time last year we would, if we knew that we were in this position, we'd be over the moon, like it's Mm. wonderful. But yes, so when it comes to actually getting the money for land acquisition like that size, it's a combination of grants and trusts. So going, you know, funding applications, explaining our mission to people, seeing if we can win a funding bid, but also going to big money for big money. And so, this means, you know, finding people.
0: Can I ask about big, so um, yeah. if I'm a, so if I'm a, if, I, if I'm a big business, like, is there, um, how can I put this, is there sort of a tax advantage to as well, right? Other than, obviously, there, I think, you know, there's a moral obligation to do it, but what's also the incentive for sort of the bigger businesses out there? Is that, does that form part of their CSR, um, the corporate social responsibility?
1: The best place to answer that. Um, because I haven't been involved in the finer details of the conversations. So I couldn't tell you. Jan could, but I couldn't. But what, what we've been exploring um, with some big UK-based businesses is more, rather than a huge donation of several million, is actually kind of very, very, very low interest um, loans. Yeah. So that's, I guess, the incentive for organizations like that, because not only you know, do they have, they get the interest and it's, and it's a green investment, but they do have that biodiversity tag and it's really good PR for them. So they are seen to be doing something good for the environment, but they also genuinely are doing something good for the environment. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a win-win really.
0: So, um, and how does the carbon credits system at the moment fit into a, you know what Heal are doing?
1: So, we're exploring that at the moment. We're new to it. Um, and we've had some conversations with some carbon credit brokers, so specialists in the UK, um, about what would work for a rewilding site. And the reason it's kind of unknown right now is that the carbon credit system is geared more to woodland creation. So, there are loads of grants, loads of interest at the moment in tree planting. Mm. So, that system is currently geared up to that idea of. We plant this many seedlings. You know, We know because of the density of the woodland, what size the trunk is going to be. We can calculate accurately how much carbon there will be. Yeah. So it's not designed right now for rewilding, which would be you know, a natural regeneration approach to um, reforesting. So there's some interesting work being done by some small startups in that, in that area that we're speaking to. And we'd love to be one of the pilot sites for it. Um, But why it's trickier is I suppose it's a bit more experimental because you can't really predict the rate at which these trees are going to regenerate. You don't know necessarily how many deer are going to be in the area and how, you know, are going to be nibbling away at your seedlings. That might be a problem, it might not. So it actually needs to be much more Um, evidence-based. And so there is a group trying to um, have applied to the carbon code to get the system changed. So there is a new way of quantifying the carbon, which isn't based on, I planted this many trees, it's actually based on the data from your site. So they would go do 3D imaging using satellites to quantify how much carbon you've got, um, ideally in the soil, but also just in the plants themselves and also in all of the leaves and every aspect of the tree, not just the trunk, which is the way that the carbon, uh, the Woodland carbon code currently calculates it. And the reason it's like that, is because so many woodlands are actually commercial forestry so it's you know it works for the majority of woodlands right now but we're hoping that it will shift in the future to be a bit more adaptable for projects like ours
0: can we give those guys a bit of a name check That that the startup
1: yeah so the people we've been speaking to the most are tree economy yeah so they are a young organization full of young people bright graduates from imperial who've worked in business and have had a look at the carbon credit system and thought hmm this doesn't actually necessarily apply to everybody and what's really interesting is that they have had very positive conversations with people that want to buy carbon credits but who really want a biodiversity tag along with it so they want to offset the carbon from you know their business whether they manufacture something or they want to offset that carbon but they also want to put on, you know, on the label of whatever they're selling, we've helped restore beaver wetlands or, you yeah. know, helped to reintroduce eagles somewhere. So they really want that tag and they're willing to pay a premium for it. So there is appetite out there, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, no, this, 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 the cynic in me says, yeah, it's, you know, hopefully it's people's goodwill, but I guess it comes down to p- companies PR as, as well, you know, so it goes a bit beyond greenwashing.
1: Well, the thing is, I mean, we say at Heal that, you know, capitalism isn't ideal and the way it it works right now is one of the reasons that our environment is getting so degraded, but the reality is it is the system we're in. And so we have to use that. And so if it benefits a business to help the environment and genuinely help the environment, not just say that they are, then go for it. That's, you know, that's what I think anyway.
0: Yeah. No, too right. So I want to want to take you back to um, some that that stuck with me earlier about trying to find these sites because I guess we're also we're, we're all under the, so much pressure on land, um, especially in the south. I mean, how 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 does one go about finding sites? Because it, it must be re- you know it must be really difficult.
1: It is. We've but well, we were very lucky. So we found a land agent who gets rewilding and who gets our organization so we've got a big old checklist of everything that we need so as i said kind of land with buildings it needs good access for cars and ideally not just cars but you know minibuses vans full of people all those different things and we've got also our desirable so it would be lovely to get a site with a river running through it or a stream that's an absolute dream because you know so good for biodiversity and so we've got this amazing land agent who is just on the lookout all the time. And so many of these sites as well are coming on the market after we hear about them. So word of mouth or so-and-so is selling a farm or so-and-so is selling this plot of land. You know, do you want to think about it before it goes on the market? So it's a lot of it is also who you know, which is tricky.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but what we're finding, or what we haven't seen yet, but I'm expecting we will see is that now that the agricultural payment system is changing and the you know, farmers won't get the same subsidy payments as they did, farms will slowly go out of business, which is really, really sad. And I don't, you know, I'm not an expert in that area, but I know that some people will be really hard hit by it. So it won't surprise me when land, more land does become available. Um, but we haven't seen that just yet. So at the moment it's quite slow we're getting a site a rate of about one a month coming through mm. quite a few of them quite big estates so private estates where you know the family's moving on or you know somebody yeah often just people are moving um, but they tend to be enormous and very luxurious and as much as they would be incredible site well you know for the land oh. they often come with a manor house which we don't need and can't afford so
0: So that's one hell of a a visitor center perhaps
1: Uh we had a grade two listed house that we saw the other day and it was kind of you know could we rewild that land and maybe sell the house but it's sort of okay well which multi-millionaire would like to live in a grade two listed house in the middle of a visitor center I don't know if you know anyone get in touch
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure sure there is one I'm sure there is some, some eccentric
1: yeah, I'm sure there is. But so it's not easy finding finding a site. It's really not. Um, and often what you find as well, particularly if it's an old, if it's a farm, that farmer is part of the community and they want another farmer to take it over because it's been farmed for so long, you know. And so we totally understand that, and that can make it tricky too.
0: So okay, so then if if I put myself in the so I can get a better understanding so if I put myself in the in the shoes of a farmer Mm. so so would they get uh so from from so from a funding point of view would they get the sort of the lump sum for the land or is there a kind of you would long-term lease I mean how do these I mean how would these things work or potentially work
1: so in our position right now we um we actually have a funding announcement. But When I spoke to you last time, I think I said, oh, it will be out by the time we speak. And it still isn't out yet. So okay. there is an announcement to come, but it's not out yet. I don't know if it will be by the time this is published, but we are- So, looking- why,
0: so by the time this is published, mm-hmm. then um, this is probably gonna be published uh, a month, two months after recording. So we're recording this on the, where are we?
1: 3rd of June. Okay. Well, I'm very much hoping that uh, there will be an announcement by July that essentially will indicate that we are in a good position this year potentially to have enough money to acquire our first site potentially, and so we could find ourselves potentially, you know, by September we might be in a position to to be a cash buyer. We could be.
0: Yeah.
1: If all goes if all goes to plan, and so from a farmer's point of view you know, uh, you you want to sell your farm and a group comes along and says, we want to take your land and totally change, you know, totally change everything about it pretty much, probably. So a farmer will have put a lot of work into maintaining the hedgerows, the access to get the land fertile to all of these things carefully engineered for their system They, you know they need to make money it's carefully engineered and so it's challenging when a group comes along and says oh all well, of that hard work you've put in we're probably just going to let it go in their eyes to rot because it is turning what's you know um a productive bit of land into something that isn't productive in a traditional sense yeah. so it's challenging but what we're seeing as well is so many different farmers that it like no farmer is the same there's a spectrum. Everyone. different interests and some people you know some of them are so into rewilding and they love it and they embrace it you know
0: so it was something that was interesting that um was in the news the other day about uh the government paying older farmers to to, and, and whether it's again whether it's a generational thing where old school farmers well farmers working under old incentives operate in that way and the new farmers working on new incentives or new incentives and new uh new sort of uh a greater understanding of of, of nature are going to operate more in, in in that way
1: yeah so um there's yeah so there's new system for agricultural payments so the elm scheme environmental land management scheme and no one exactly knows how that is going to look yet but it sh- the idea is that it's a lot more flexible than the existing countryside stewardship scheme. Yeah. That was designed um, in line with the EU directives. And for example, the ma- one of the major things that was an issue with the EU's directive was that farmers would get penalized, for example, if they didn't clear scrub, because scrub management was part of the, or part of the program we now know that scrub is actually really valuable habitat but there wasn't that flexibility before for that to be part of the uh, um a system that you'd get paid for yeah. so these new systems coming in and it's going to be very different to the old one because there's going to be all sorts of new ideas in there that people are going to have to get on board with if they want to receive those payments so i guess that's the government's thinking is that they want you know, fresh thinking that people can get on board with their new way of doing things.
0: So this um, is public money for the public good. That's the phrase, isn't it?
1: Exactly. And we're really hopeful about that. And that everyone in the sector is really hopeful about it and looking forward to it, because in theory, it will be great. And I've been to a few webinars about it now. I've learned how it works. And, you know, in theory, it's still being designed. And we've we submitted um, a response to the consultation because we didn't really think personally that there was enough um flexibility in there for rewilding because it's slightly more experimental so because the payments are based on you know you do this and you get an outcome what happens if you're leaving the land to go fallow what happens if you're just letting it do its thing there's kind of oh you'll get this much a year for that so that's what we the main you know flaw that we pointed out so we're interested to see how that will be but yeah, I'm guessing that's the government's thinking behind behind that. But it's a bit scary, because I personally am quite worried that if there's not enough support for farmers in the UK, our farms will disappear, and we'll be importing all of our food. And that's a very scary position to be in. Um, yeah. None... S-
0: sorry, say again, honey? Cut out. None,
1: of us want, none of us want to be in that position. You yeah. don't want to be relying on imports from other countries for your food. It's just crazy. So... Really hoping that's not the future we're heading towards.
0: Well, I guess it's a balancing act, really, isn't it? It's, it's, um, you know, I'm thinking perhaps the smaller farms will, will, um, you know, will be swallowed up by perhaps larger farms as part of that as well. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but. Um, I'm
1: hoping that I'm hoping that farms that can be a bit more adaptable will survive. So, for example, Wild Ken Hill in Norfolk, yep. used to be. Um, all arable I believe and it's now been taken over by Dominic Boskell who is a young man from a management consultancy background and he looked at the income streams and he looked at the consequences of Brexit and he decided that the farm needed to to diversify so they now have regenerative farming they have rewilding and they have conservation three distinct areas that all make money in different ways and I think that is the way to go about it don't know don't limit yourself, don't box yourself into committing to one and only one type of income stream. If you if the land, you know, that if the land can accommodate multiple things, go for it because it keeps it keeps you financially stable in the long term.
0: Yeah. That's interesting you say about uh Dominic, because I I I got in contact with him and uh I don't know, I don't, he didn't look like a farmer to me. I thought, yeah, someone does it. He looked too clean cut and uh not uh, sort of
1: uh very uh, good at it. I got a tour and he was very efficient getting through all the mud so but
0: good on him yeah. good on him <laughs> no but that's but really interesting I'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you bring this up because yeah they are at ken hill again that's a really good model for um you know for making um making uh you know uh, a viable living via agriculture um and you know, physically reducing your inputs, physically, you know, making making sure the, the you know the balance sheet uh, balances. But um, but yeah, d- you know, diversifying that the income stream that's a that's a really good point.
1: It makes so much sense. And you know, what NEPA are doing as well. I personally don't eat meat. I'm vegetarian. Yep. Most people don't really like meat, and I don't like intensive farms. Mm. But don't like meat, but what NEPA are doing, which is again rewilding, low input. They looked at their budget spreadsheet, realized that they couldn't carry on, you know, spraying pesticides all over the land and hoping that it suddenly would work. So then they have now free range animals that need very little maintenance. You know, they, they can breed, I mean, most rewarding projects use species that can breed on their own that don't need intensive vet, you know, input.
0: Mm.
1: So it's a lot cheaper
0: um that's the one thing about perhaps that perhaps that gets lost in the conversation is the business case okay. you know like i mean again you know we've talked about this previously on the podcast you know it's the business case um there is the you know there is the emotive case but there is the mass- massively strong business case as well i mean like what you guys are doing as well there is the numbers the numbers stack up
1: well so when i left the phd i was very frustrated at how much plastic was wasted hmm from that and so when i got my first volunteer job in conservation i thought it was all going to be very different and that they'd think about carbon emissions and that sort of stuff and actually i was quite shocked because wildlife conservation habitat management so if you're going to intensively you know engineer a habitat to fit a plan yes really really like emission intensive so you know we would drive to work in our cars load up a Land Rover and trailer with various different power tools and then drive that Land Rover sometimes an hour away. <laughs> big yeah. old, old diesel Land Rover. You drive it an hour away and then you get your chainsaws and your bits and bobs out and top them up with fuel. Do what you needed to do. Whack it all in. Drive So actually like the carbon emitted from that was really heavy. And we were all, you know, all of the different land management teams were doing that every single day. And then also, you know, no, I won't say that. I won't say about the cows. That's all right. Well, you've also got cows on your side, managing the site. And so if you have too many cows, they emit methane. So overall, it's pretty, you know, carbon heavy. And I just remember thinking, is this, you know, because I was going out every day and doing these things. The management plan says that you do this. The management plan says, that, and I think, well, why? Why do we have to do that? And I keep, you know, I'd ask people that all the time, why do we have to cut that tree down? Why do we have to do this? And then it just clicked because they said, well, because there's no animals here to do it. Oh, but why aren't there animals here to do it? Well, and then you look at the the way that our countryside is and it's kind of towns and everything's fenced and everything's gated. So you don't have herds of cattle and pigs and ponies and all those different things roaming through your countryside anymore, doing what they used to do. Mm to me when I learned about rewilding I was like this is so sensible because they do it for you for free it's it you give it feeds them it keeps them happy and it it's just it just makes so much sense (laughs)
0: Mm. no it really does and I and I think that you know when the you know when there is you know 10 20 30 years of data you know that comes out which again you know when you when people are going for funding, you can kind of see it. So it's not just it's not just yeah a, 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 an emotive for you point when you see that. You know, I was, it was for, for it was a really great um, podcast that I did uh, back end of last year where I was talking to um, in a similar note than um, um, the chairman of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, and uh, and it really brought it home to me that he said because he was um, farming. Uh, you know with with nature combining farming and nature um his uh his pesticide use was down by like 50 percent and he saved over twenty thousand. he was over twenty thousand liters of diesel or twenty thousand pounds by not cultivating yep. you know? and, that, and and that again it really brought it up to me that you know again you know uh, as it goes on and the soil health increases and you are you're not employing loads of people that you know you're your inputs are are your, your they are decreased you know I think it's as, as simple as that really
1: well, I think we're just learning really that the old ways worked so when
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I shouldn't laugh but it's it's so bloody obvious isn't it it's like you know nature's done it you know nature's done all right for the last 10 billion years and we've come along in the last 50 years and changed it and oh, perhaps we could be wrong
1: well, at Walken Hill, they, when I went there for my day, so I was really lucky, I got the whole, the whole tour, I was hosted for a day, it was wonderful. And when I was there, they were explaining, you know, that they were re- always reviewing what they're doing on their regenerative farming areas to see, okay, how can we cut pesticides? How can we cut all of these different things? And then um, they were showing me a diagram where they're thinking about having fields on rotation which is like one of the most basic things I remember learning about this in school, you know, how farming should be on rotation, leaving the land to rest. And then they have, what they're doing there is having cover crops. So that over the winter, the soil isn't just bare and being, you know, hammered by the rain. There's actually crops there, fixing nitrogen, keeping the soil healthy. And that they'll have, and and then in a trial kind of what animals can they have on those cover crops, you know, eating, Recycling the soil, putting the dung back on the soil and just having that in rotation with the, like the animals working their way around you know, Can we have chickens? Can we have whatever?
0: Yeah.
1: It's kind of like, well, this is actually to some people so revolutionary. <laughs> it's just going back to the old ways. I feel like we've pushed the boundaries really as far as we can when it comes to how productive can we make land? We've pushed that boundary too far and now we're just bouncing back.
0: Yeah. And it's sort of interesting you say about, uh, about, you know, learning about that at school. So, um, so coming full circle, really, I mean, we've talked in the past about youth engagement. Do you, um, I mean, can you give me a, what Heal, had, uh, HEAL are doing with regards to youth engagement?
1: Sure. So when I originally was uh, contacted by Jan about HEAL, it was because the wildlife group I'd set up was quite... Uh, dominated I guess by young people which was the polar opposite to all of the other groups locally and I didn't engineer that on purpose it just I guess you know when I promote things I just naturally promote it on the channels that I use and that attracts people from the channels that you know similar things yeah. so I been noticed in the area because oh look at this young this group of young people going to the local councils you know, what What are they doing? So it, it was great. Um, and so when she contacted me, she said, we really need young people in this organization because we've got six trustees. And she'd done a similar thing, you know, met people that were of similar backgrounds to her and talked about the charity and asked if they'd be trustees. And they said, yes, because you just, you know, when you're starting on a mission like that, it's who you know that can help you. And so she looked at the trustees and realized, oh, we haven't got any young people here. We probably should have a youth panel. And so she asked me if I could help with that. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And when I advertised for the panel, originally, this is my capacity as a volunteer before I was hired, I put out just a very sort of um, informal, express your interest not an application, nothing like that. And I thought, you know, we'd have to go out and recruit people and find people. And I was totally blown away because we were swamped, absolutely swamped. And if I could go back in time and change the process, I might, because I just had no idea how many young people would be interested in being on a panel like that. You know, it was over a hundred people. And we, you know, we, we didn't even advertise it in that way. You know, it just people came, found, found us. And so, when I was looking at the people who had applied so many of them were like me so working in conservation or so many of them had always loved nature and loved wildlife and were birders from very young because mum and dad were into that kind of story and I looked at all those people and I thought those people are brilliant but they're all from the same pot which is the same kind of people that are in all of the nature charities right now And then I looked at the people who didn't have that background. So people who were in pharmaceuticals, my old sector, who were in finance, who were doing jobs that, let's be honest, they didn't really feel passionate about, they just landed up in. And they had that kind of moment where they realized climate change, biodiversity crisis was huge and they needed to do something. So they were kind of the convert, like the converters, kind of how I think about them, people who have realized later. And so I actually, tried my best to interview most of those people from that background because they have so much more to add especially when you're as a charity trying to reach new people those
0: you know, as you're as you're talking I think this is so good because this 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 the the skill sets the varied skill sets you bring or you know you bring into the party I mean this yeah. fills me with so much hope because again you don't want to be you know too focused on I'm a conservationist and I'm just thinking in my in my silo and that's it you know but 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 that the varied skill sets that, that build me with so much hope that the you know the, for the future of Heal.
1: because also I've been part of a few similar things before for different charities and so you're sitting in a room full of young people who are so enthusiastic about nature <laughs> okay, okay how can we reach more young people and they say oh let's do a tree hunt and let's do a bug day and let's do all of these things and I think none of of my friends outside of this world would come to that and so if you're talking to the same people with similar interests all the time all they're going to suggest is things that they would like to do
0: as you're saying that it's a bit of a tired formulaic yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah, yeah. that blue planet and all of those david attenborough style things inspire people so things that people can do from the comfort of their own home in their own time and that's the difference. We need to make nature more accessible. so that's what the youth panel are really good at because they, you know, they all have different backgrounds. Some of them are in school, some of them are in, are in uni, some of them are after uni employed. And so you've got that variety. And you know, one's a politics student, one's a management consultant. They all do different things. And that really helps because they then know what kind of thing is gonna interest their peer group. And so you're breaking away from that echo chamber, which is mm. so, so
0: important. Yeah, that's what I was looking for, actually, echo chamber. Yeah. yeah. Aren't we doing well? We're really good. Yes, that's, you yeah. <laughs> know. Cool, Hannah. Um, wow, we're just coming up to 55 minutes. Is there anything um, is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about? Because this is, uh, I feel that we could probably talk for about another four hours, to be honest.
1: <laughs> I guess um, on the land front. Because people, I find people are always really interested in kind of how we're going to manage land and what we're going to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Decisions. Um, we are thinking at the moment, and I've got I've just been putting together a flowchart of decisions, all the possible scenarios that could happen. You know, yeah. someone says you should plant wildflowers, someone says you should plant trees, someone says you should reintroduce species. I'm now going through all these checklists of things, and you know, essentially. What we're trying to do is be as hands off as possible. So you have to think, can nature do this itself? You know, can a jay fly into this field and plant an acorn here? If the answer is yes, and if that's a likely thing that's gonna happen, nature should be allowed to do it because it knows what it's doing best. Trees will naturally regenerate in places that suit it, where it has enough nutrients, where it has the support. If you plant a tree where you think it should be, it's gonna struggle. Mm. So that's just basically one of the reasons I love rewilding so much and why I love heal so much is that, and why I think other people love this kind of thing so much is it's about taking a step back and accepting that actually we know a lot and we are very clever, but we're not, we don't know everything.
0: Mm.
1: It's really exciting for future to think about what could happen if we actually learn as a species to step down every now and again and stop trying to tightly control everything so much it's really exciting it's experimental and you never know what will happen and yeah I just love it
0: so so I'm, I'm interested in that, with that flow chart so so you're so you guys and the trustees are thinking about how much you want to intervene because it's quite interesting I, I, I want to go back to that point because next week I'm going to um to at the time what was it yeah beginning of June I'm going back to uh, net for how to rewild your garden and I always feel this is there is this underlying push and pull between you know how how much intervention do we need you know like what, how much intervention do, do you need how much intervention does people do people feel comfortable with um, yeah, it's an, inter- it's an interesting debate, actually.
1: So you've got to sort of think about what is missing from the landscape. And so one of the major things that's missing is free-roaming animals, as we talked about earlier. Mm. So they'd be ploughing up the soil, but very gently and at a low intensity. They'd be stamping around. They would be rubbing up on trees and removing the bark from trees. They would be nibbling at things. So all of those really low-intensity things if you think about like your garden they aren't really happening because you don't you know just go up to your tree and randomly whip a bit off it or snap a twig or those different things you just don't think to do that you wouldn't naturally get a mini wildfire in your garden and have an area be decimated and then regenerate and new things come through mm. and it, and it, all these different things that like, those just aren't happening and they aren't happening in our landscape because we've controlled it so much so we've straightened all our our rivers and put them in channels. And we have areas that are like no-go zones where people and animals don't walk through so the soil doesn't get disturbed. So because you don't have those mini disturbances happening all the time, you don't get that variety in habitat, which is why you don't get that variety in species. Mm. So if you can think about a space in in that kind of setting and think it needs to be random, the disturbance needs to be low intensity, but you know, just unpredictable and if you can keep things unpredictable then you'll get that variety because basically it's all about diversity and so the way to get an abundance and diversity of species is to give them a diversity of habitats yeah let's for example love bare earth so have you got any bare earth in your garden most people don't it's either paved or it's grass so just little things like that
0: it's interesting like you know you, you say about bear, um, bare soil like uh, I interviewed uh, a really famous gardener and uh, you know he was saying that you know as, 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 as a gardening profession we see uh, empty soil or bare soil as a dirty word but it's looking at with, within a garden setting is everything you may not be able to put a label on it but everything is a different habitat type you know yeah. some are so nuanced as well and I think we need, from a from a garden point of view, I think we do need to, you know, the aesthetic is going to be important, but <clears throat> looking at, you know, looking at our gardens as, you know, those habitat types, not just this is the effect aesthetic, uh, this is the habitat type, and we must embrace, yeah, must embrace the difference, I think.
1: Well, no Mo is just finished. Oh. And you know, this has been running for several years. So the whole idea of, like, you know, excuse the weeds, we're feeding the bees. Yeah. that has been going around for so long now. It's not complicated. <laughs> no. People struggle with it so much still. I'm seeing on Twitter all the time people saying that, you know, their parents come around for a cup of tea and they get lectured all the time about no. keeping the grass Or There's such a mindset shift still that we need to go through.
0: It, we... So, sorry, say again, Heather?
1: Obsessed with tidiness. Yeah
0: yeah we we are i sorry yeah we are we are we are but it will cha- it will change and like we were talking about but, but before the podcast you know it um i do see that window i do see that window realistically next five years where it becomes the norm for especially for councils to because yeah. to, we were talking we were talking a couple of weeks ago about um piece of research that uh you've seen about was it a quarter of uh, parish count a quarter of county councils are um are rewilding or reducing their man- management of their
1: grasslands or have at least rewilding in their plans so even if they're not doing it yet i think it was a quarter of councils at least have plans to rewild which is great and you know coming back to that point about the business element it's just so much cheaper <laughs>
0: Well, it is, and this was. But then, this is a really good. So, this is a really good thing that came up. Um, So, I was talking to um, to James Mellander. He is a uh, county councillor, a a district councillor for Suffolk, and he made um, he made the real he made a really sober, you know, um, description of it. He said, you know, what we are doing is, you know, the, the 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 you know the land management budget. You know, I'm I'm cost neutral because the guys what the guys are doing is they are you know, they're not mowing 70 sites now, which frees up, you know, that amount of time, which then allows us to do the more labour intensive um, weed killing. So they don't use Roundup, they use um, a non-toxic foam um, um, uh, system, which takes a lot longer, which they've got to go back three or four times, but- um,
1: They've got more time because they're not constantly mowing verges or whatever.
0: Yeah. And I think, and I think that's a real, you know, it's a real, uh, strong case. Um, cause James Manander is a person who's very, he, he knows his stuff, but he's very sober and he, and, and as a, and a, as a, as a, you know, district councillor, he's got, you know, he's, he's using public money. So he, he, he feels, he feels, and he felt that responsibility, um, quite, quite strongly. Um, and, you know, he's got to keep, got, got to keep it to the budget. So, um, yeah, it's a strong, strong undeniable business case.
1: The more of that we see and the less fake grass we see the better
0: well on that note i think we we agree that every uh artificial lawn company uh needs to have a strong word with itself and uh i can't uh, who who <clears throat> who would want a fast artificial lawn? i can't i don't get it
1: well i think my neighbors potentially
0: oh well then you need to get new neighbors i think you need to move out <laughs> <laughs>
1: my house so extensively in bird boxes and bee boxes and all those things yeah it just subliminally goes across we'll get there just when all the swifts are in my garden and not theirs we'll see maybe it changes their mind yeah i live in hope
0: <laughs> so hannah um thank you very much for doing this podcast it's it's been really good do you want to give um so where can people find out about uh, yourselves? uh, uh you know, yourself on LinkedIn and Heal uh, in, in general?
1: So we are Heal Rewilding and all of our Instagram, oh, start again. we are Heal Rewilding and all of our social media handles are at Heal Rewilding, all one word. Um, and our website is healrewilding.org.uk. There's lots of information on there about our plans, about us. You can dive into that. We've got all of our, um all of our intentions for biodiversity, climate change, you can read all about that there. And all of our events, so we do regular webinars, all of that sort of stuff is kept up to date on social media. So give us a follow.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Hannah. It's been great. Really appreciate you doing this. Cool. There we go. Let's just cancel, stop recording. <laughs>